You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This is an Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program podcast in collaboration with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital. Hi, I'm Tania Ramos. I'm one of the nurse educators in the Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program. Joining me today is Sonia Elia, nurse practitioner and manager for the immunisation service here at RCH. Sonia is also a professional lead for the ambulatory service, as well as a fellow Dame Elizabeth Murdoch Nursing Development Scholarship recipient. Welcome, Sonia. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Thanks, Tanya. I feel really privileged to be invited. Well, I'm so excited to have you. There's so many questions that we've got for you. And to be honest, we could make this podcast go forever, but we're going to try and keep it short and sweet. I guess I wanted to really start off by talking about the scholarship and the outcomes that you were able to accomplish from that. And then really in this time of age of COVID, I really want to talk to you about COVID vaccination in children, you know, particularly that you are such a nurse leader here at RCH. And this is sort of the area of expertise is immunisation. So first of all, can you take us through what you achieve with the scholarship? Yeah, sure. So I have worked in immunisation for 17 years. And I've been particularly passionate about vulnerable and special risk groups. And one of those is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So I applied for the scholarship because I really wanted to make a difference to the immunisation rates of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients here at the Children's Hospital. And what I realised is that I didn't really know a lot about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. So the scholarship enabled me to travel to Canada, to New Zealand, Uh, Townsville and Cairns and I had the opportunity to learn about First Nations peoples and the overwhelming message was that if you can get the culture right then the immunisations will follow. So I learnt a lot about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and then I tried to incorporate that into the immunisation service because one of the things was people weren't coming to the centre because I don't think it was a culturally safe place to visit. So we implemented some artwork, music therapy, Um, cultural music therapy sessions. We had a footballer become an ambassador for the immunisation service at the hospital. We developed immunisation brochures. And since the changes were implemented, we've actually seen a dramatic increase in the patients being immunised at the Children's Hospital Immunisation Service. So in 2014, we had 2% of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples receive a flu vaccine. And in 2019, we had 27%. So it was a significant increase that's that's amazing such amazing work that you're doing and so important for those communities really yeah definitely and even just their scheduled vaccines as well we had seen 14 percent of kids be immunized in 2014 and in 2019 it was 43 percent so wow yeah it's really a significant really a marked increase yeah it's been fantastic you know, as a fellow recipient of this scholarship, it's amazing, you know, what outcomes you can achieve for better patient care, you know, both in hospital, but also in the community. And, you know, I've heard you speak many times on your project and you're such a, you know, a passionate, you know, driven woman and a true inspiration really for all nurses. So we thank you so much for that wonderful work that you've undertaken because it's so important to really look after our First Nation communities. Yeah, thanks. Um, That's wonderful. (laughs) Now, sort of moving on from your scholarship, and I guess that's going to give people an insight actually about how passionate you are about immunisation and how educated you are in this. 
you know, there seems to be so much mixed messages and, you know, out in the community. And we know that RCH is going to be doing a podcast specifically targeting families and I guess young people, providing that education for them when it comes to the opportunity to have the COVID vaccine. With this time living in, in the pandemic, can you tell us about, you know, especially now that we know that the vaccine's been approved for 12 and over, can you tell me how that's going to impact your service and a little bit about how clinicians can get further information and education out there to the community because there is such mixed messages. There's so much in that. (laughs) There is so much in that. I know. I guess the first thing is, I mean, look, that uh, licensing the vaccine from 12 years of age is going to have a dramatic impact on our service. I think for some time now we've been uh, in a little bit isolated because it's been an adult vaccine and so it hasn't really impacted on the immunisation centre at the Children's Hospital, although we have been providing advice to adults. There is a lot of mixed messages in the community and I think that's because everybody's got an opinion. I mean, I even went to my hairdresser and my barber was telling me all about DNA vaccines. I was like, everybody seems to know something. And people are so passionate, aren't they? And really, it's really hard to find common ground. Yes, correct. And I think with scheduled vaccines, you know, people say, well, we don't see polio anymore, so why is that vaccine important? You know, we only have measles when it's imported from overseas. But this is something that's impacting everybody in their day-to-day life, and that's why everybody has got an opinion and is so passionate about it. But I guess what I see the role of the immunisation service is, I guess, really debunking those myths and giving people the factual information. So it's not our opinions. This is based on evidence. What does the evidence say? And you know, there's a lot of confusion about whether or not you should wait for the Pfizer vaccine or should you get the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we give really clear advice about that and what are the risks. And it really is a risk-benefit discussion. You know, what is the risk of you catching COVID? What is the risk of the, having the vaccine and the side effects? And correct. And I mean, the risk, obviously, with the current outbreak in Sydney mm. and now in Victoria, we're seeing more children actually, oh, and in Queensland, we are seeing more children actually catch COVID now and then pass them on to family members or other children in their classes. You know, I have a husband who is a teacher and this is something that's really a passion of his is how can we educate the children, educate the families and you know get the message that actually the vaccine is safe and it, it is instrumental in trying to get our way of life back. Definitely, yes. There's definitely evidence suggesting that children, particularly high school children, so that 12 and up age group, those kids getting the disease and spreading it. And so this is really important that the vaccine's now been licensed for use in this age group. And it is for those with underlying medical conditions and we know that children with underlying medical problems and those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, again, are more vulnerable. And so that's who the vaccine's been funded for, you know, as of next week. So those children with underlying medical conditions, we know they're more at risk of flu, they're more at risk of pneumococcal and they're going to be more at risk of COVID as well. And we've already got calls from families asking, you know, can I book my child in to get the the COVID vaccination? So we're just working through those processes at the moment. But yes, I absolutely encourage any parent who has a child, you know, 12 years and older who have underlying medical conditions to seek out the vaccine. That's wonderful. And it's such an important message, you know, to get out there to the community 
and to the clinicians and what resources Sonia because you know there are people listening who work in rural and regional centers what resources do they have access to or how can they get in touch with you to get that sort of most up-to-date information when it comes to COVID vaccination in children we know that there's a lot out there now both true and untrue for Mm. adults but what sort of the best resources that clinicians out in the community can access or how how can they get in touch with you if they needed to? So the Department of Health have some really fantastic resources. Uh, They put them in really great, easy to read and not too lengthy as well. And it's all based on the ATAGI advice and there's lots of links within the Department of Health resources to ATAGI to get a bit more of an understanding about the vaccines and really enabling clinicians to have that risk-benefit discussion. If there's a clinician who wants to get more expert advice and sometimes they don't want to you know, be able to trawl through you know, lots of reading to find the answer, then they can certainly call the immunisation service at the Children's Hospital to get more advice from a clinician quickly and efficiently. Yeah, that's an amazing resource and it's such an important thing for clinicians out there in the community to know that they do have access to your team and your services so that they can best deliver both information and care to, you know, families and, and their children. In terms of if we sort of delve down into the actual COVID vaccine for children, obviously you said it would be the Pfizer, which is available now. Can you sort of just run us through the safety and efficacy of that in children and how we came about to have that decision to say, yes, was there a, was there a big international trial? Did we try it in, in Australia? Could you give us a little bit more insight on that? Yes, so the vaccine has been used internationally uh, from 12 years of age. And I guess that's what we've always been lucky about, I think, in Australia is that we have had the opportunity to sit back a little bit and learn from our international colleagues. So there's definitely been studies in the UK, in the US and Canada of the vaccine in this age group, which has been proven to be as safe and as immunogenic as it is in adults. And so that's why it is important because I think, as you've mentioned, it's not just about protecting the kids, but it's about protecting them, you know, the teachers. It's also just that whole family approach. And also I think what we have seen in the literature as well is the devastating effects of not being able to go to school on kids and their mental health. And so this enables kids, once they've had the vaccination, to get back to school and and to feel safe at school it's such an important thing you know children haven't been able to for so long really not just in Australia but obviously internationally go to school participating sport and drama and all the all the things that really children need to flourish and develop so I guess this is really the vaccine really is a passport for freedom in a way exactly yeah yes yeah and in terms of myths and challenges maybe that you've come across, what are the biggest misconceptions about the COVID vaccine specifically relating to children? I haven't seen too many. It's I don't think there's any myths that are specific to children. I, I think there's this myth that children um, aren't the super spreaders. They're not the ones getting the disease. And that's certainly seen in some trials in preschool children, yeah. but not so in the adolescent group, which is why this 12 to 15-year-old group is so important. I, I guess the thing that most people worry about or what I hear the most, I was just talking to a person yesterday who I was recommending uh, to get the Pfizer vaccine, and she was talking about... About a blood clotting problem and I was like 
yeah, but that's not an issue with this vaccination. You know, that may be a contraindication to having AstraZeneca, but it's certainly say, but that's the problem is that people then just, they hear blood clots. So suddenly it's all COVID vaccines, right? And not just this, you know, a specific one. So, uh, I mean, there's lots of different questions that people have. And that's what I mean. It's really important that they talk to an immunisation expert. So if there is a family member who is worried about whether their child should get the vaccine or not, they're best to speak to an immunisation expert, not ask their neighbour or their hairdresser or anybody else who, you know, thinks that they know all about immunisation, but really speak to somebody who does give you that factual information and not just their opinions. Yeah. And I think there is such an opinion like this has happened too quickly. The vaccines come about, you know, um, too rapidly. How do we know if it's effective? How do we know, you know, if everyone's going to be end up with mutant genes, you know, 15 years down the track? Like you and I smile at this. And it sounds ridiculous, but these are genuine fears that people have. And, you know, if you if you look through Instagram, if you look through Facebook or any other social platform, you find that you're, it's almost like people are being targeted regardless of whether they're pro-COVID vaccination or not. Yeah. So I guess, I guess a take-home message today is vaccines are safe. This vaccine is safe. And um, it's important to help really prevent uh, further disease out in the community and, and also prevent, you know, all the other comorbidities associated with the long-term COVID. Um, have there been many studies sort of done in children who have had COVID and then have had prolonged uh, illness? I think they're studies that are currently underway. So I don't think we've got any answers as yet, but it's certainly work that's being undertaken. Yeah. You know, we're so, as you said, we're so lucky that we live in Australia. We really are a bubble and have mm-hmm. been protected so much from the impact that has occurred internationally. With your international colleagues, how are they finding overseas? Has it been as much reluctance to COVID vaccination as it there seems to be currently in Australia? No, and in fact, I read a, an opinion piece by Fiona Russell, one of our um, medical colleagues here at uh, Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and she was having a conversation with one of her international colleagues, and they just were blown away that we weren't using AstraZeneca because it had been so widely used overseas and we were so hesitant to use it here. So, yeah, the rollout programs internationally, and we've seen the data, we are the lowest country and our vaccination rates are the lowest and I think because our um, epidemiology isn't as great as what it's been overseas I mean you just look at the UK you know they got such a quick uptake of vaccine and the US because they had such high numbers of disease so you know yes we've had lockdowns yes we've had disease but it hasn't been in the numbers that we've seen internationally and so it's, it's always been the case I went to a vaccine hesitancy workshop in France and someone from Nigeria was like, vaccine hesitancy? What's what's that? You know, I would do anything in our country to be able to just give, give measles vaccine. So it's always been one of those things where if you don't have such high numbers of disease, you don't think the vaccines is important. And I, and I certainly think we need to stop thinking like that because all it's going to take, we're looking at, you know, New South Wales at the moment, I mean, that's just a disaster. And if we'd had good high levels of immunisation, and now that's what we're talking about, but I feel like we should have been talking about this six months ago. Yeah, months and months ago. Well, I'm just going to obviously wrap it up because, you know, we're, we're getting to that time now, but I just wanted to really thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful insight, you know, having you as an expert, you know, speak on this. Um, and I think it's going to be such a great resource for clinicians out there in the community to educate themselves and educate you know the community in a really positive way and you're so right I think one other thing that I'm really hearing from you is about changing that message what would be the take-home message for you right now for those clinicians listening to us at the moment 
I guess it would be to be consistent in your approach. You know, it's getting the right information, giving that information and making a risk-benefit discussion. And if you're not sure, don't make stuff up. Just ask people who do this every day and have got that knowledge and, you know, feel free to refer patients to get expert advice if it's out of their, you know, depth. So, but it is really important that we just have the same consistent messaging so that people in the community are feeling less confused. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much again, Sonia, for your time. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.